A Cincinnati business owner, Solar House, bought a ticket and was ready to spend the next three years living at sea, running her ad agency from a cruise ship. Until a trip got canceled. In other news, one of Cincinnati's largest malls was sold earlier this year, and now we know how much for it. Also, an over-the-rhine eatery was named one of the best new restaurants in America. This is Above the Fold. Welcome to Above the Fold, a podcast where we bring you the biggest headlines and local news from the Cincinnati Business Courier, as well as interviews with newsmakers that take you behind the story. I'm your host, Andy Brownfield, joined by co-host and Courier Editor-in-Chief Tom Demeropoulos. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Andy. Happy to be here. Notice I pronounced it both ways this time. I, I, I saw that. Well, well, I heard that. I saw you celebrate when I pronounced it correctly, air quotes, the first time. <laughs> so I decided deliberately to pronounce it Courier the second time. Yes. So have you uh, put up all your lights for Christmas? Yes. All the lights are up. All the decorations are, are hung by the chimney with care. And a lot of my shopping is done, which is a surprise for me. I'm typically a last-minute shopper. Yeah, I'm jealous of you because I I inevitably leave all my shopping for the last minute because it's just so hard to think of ideas. Like, I, I am of the school of thought that it is the thought that counts. So I like to give meaningful and personal gifts to people, but it's not always that easy. And I, I, I feel like I've let myself and them down, bizarrely, if I, if I give them that I feel like something I didn't feel like I put enough thought into. Yeah, I can understand that. So one of the things that I consciously did this year was I tried to take notes when I would see something or when someone would say, like, oh, I really like that. I'd be like, ooh, let me just make a note of that. So I had a, you know, a decent amount of things to go to and say, these are all things throughout the year that people had said, well, it would be nice if I had this. That's smart, and I wish I would have done that before December. 2024, Andy. New Year's resolution. You'll be ready. So, Tom, what are your memories of Eastgate Mall? Though I guess being a West Sider, you probably didn't make it out there too often, if at all. No, I don't. I've, I've probably been to that mall less than five times, if I had to, if I had to guess. I have been to the, there was a a bookstore. I don't remember if it was Barnes and Noble or Walden Books. There was a large bookstore next to the mall that I went to a couple of times with uh, one of my college buddies, who's a big uh, uh, bibliophile, oh. big, big book reader. So we would go and read books there because it was for, uh, for whatever reason. He's from Brown County, so it was on the way home for him. But I would go out with him and check out books there sometimes. That that's surprisingly wholesome. Uh, you know, I grew up in Mount Washington. Eastgate was about equidistant from me as Kenwood, and I kind of used the mall for the typical mall stuff. You know, the arcade, Hot Topic, Dance Dance Revolution. Did so you- <laughs> that would be Northgate Mall for me, which was uh, Tilt, I think was the name of their arcade. And it was, uh, I would play the Simpsons game. and oh, classic. Um, the other big one for me was, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on it now. Um Jurassic Park, where you would get in the car and, yeah. and drive the car. Yes, and uh, I don't remember Jurassic Park, the movie, having as many machine guns as N- that game did. Yes, yeah. Well, you know, I uh, between 2002 and 2011, I kind of exclusively bought all my clothes at Kohl's because everything was on sale at Kohl's until I realized, I, and I didn't realize this until like much later in life, that that was their thing. Nothing was ever full price at Kohl's, but I thought it was like, hey, I'm getting great deals here. It's kind of like the places that do half price sushi. You're like, wait, it's always half price. Yeah. So if it's always half price, 
isn't that just the price? <laughs> so we learned back in September that Eastgate Mall was purchased from former owner and lender Wells Fargo, but at that time we didn't know how much for. Georgia-based Whole Property Group paid $11.6 million for the mall, and uh, that was $1.6 million less than Wells Fargo paid just one year earlier. It is. and uh, But, you know, kind of funnily enough, uh, Andy, Whole uh, Property Group kind of said they overpaid at that price. They did, even though they bought it for less than the seller sold, uh, bought it for previously. Yeah, uh, an auction report from July 2022 when Wells Fargo purchased the mall appraised it at $20 million. So Wells Fargo must have thought they were getting a steal. But Eastgate, like a lot of malls, has been struggling in the retail realm as of late. And luckily for them... Hull owns 34 malls across 17 states and has a track record of rehabilitating malls in decline. And they said that is their plan for Eastgate. They want to rehab the retail before looking at a mixed-use development at the site. And, you know, there is some precedent for that idea for Cincinnati's malls. Yeah. And that's probably why they view this, Andy, as a as a overpays. You know, one, you're not paying for the value of the building of the built environment you're, you're paying because of the opportunity there you know this is probably it's going to take a lot more money to get it to where they want it to be uh so your you know your entry price is kind of high um but as they said it's 100 acres of good real estate so it's a really good opportunity for them to go in there and do something different with that property yeah plus they've got great highway access and proximity to a ton of other shopping i'm thinking of jungle gyms right out there so if they're able to incorporate some kind of mixed-use element to that, putting some kind of residential tower there, office, hotel, it could turn out to be a great site. Yeah, and it is. It's a growth market. That part of Claremont County is growing rapidly. So, Yeah. Stump, you've never been on a cruise, right? I have never been on a cruise. Uh, are you just not interested in cruises or, or what? Um, I don't. So I guess growing up, uh, my dad was not, he's not a cruise person, so we wouldn't go on a, uh, on a cruise if he didn't want to go on a cruise. <laughs> uh, he has since been on one as part of the, my parents went to Alaska and they were on a boat for part of that. Um, but no, I, I've never been on a cruise. So I feel like vacationers break down into two large, broad subsections, people who are, are really experiential and immersive who really want like to visit a different country a different part of the 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 country uh, immerse themselves in the local cuisine the language the sites to see the cultural institutions and then people who just want to relax and have a good time people who on a beach vacation they're comfortable just going to the beach with a good book a couple beers and hanging out all day versus people who want to take hikes along the beach and maybe wander into the rainforest and and check out you know off the beaten trail kind of stuff i feel like i'm a good mix of both but i'm not gonna lie i kind of low-key dig cruises my family went on two uh, my parents took my brothers and i in 2011 on a cruise to alaska and then years before that i can't remember exactly when we went down to the u.s virgin islands and I don't remember when that was, but I do know I was not of age to consume alcohol because we stopped on one of the islands and a bartender at a beachside cabana in very colorful language told me not to worry about the drinking age before selling me a pina colada. Nice. I digress. I know that cruises are not everybody's cup of tea, but can you imagine living on a cruise for three years? Um, no, I, I could not. Again, and I, I don't know if I would enjoy a cruise since because I've never been. Um, but I couldn't imagine 
being in a hotel, living out of a hotel, which is essentially what a cruise is, a floating hotel uh, with lots of amenities. Uh, I couldn't imagine living out of a hotel for a year, nonetheless three. Yeah, I found the sweet spot is about two weeks. But Carrie Whitman, the founder and president of boutique digital marketing agency Clever Lucy, was all set to depart on a three-year cruise around the world called Life at Sea. It was set to leave on November 1 from Istanbul, and it's a first-of-its-kind trip, which includes stops at 140 countries around the world. Now, Whitman said she'd been feeling restless and was sick of maintaining her home, but she didn't want to sell a property and only have to move to a condo and do the same thing, maintain the home. So she discovered this Life at Sea cruise, she sold her Oakley home, and she bought a ticket, which starts at around $30,000. Now, Clever Lucy is a remote-first company, so she just planned to work from the ship for three years. And I, I know you haven't been on a cruise, but that does not sound super feasible, seeing as how Wi-Fi on cruise ships, which are often miles away from any kind of fiber optic telecommunications equipment, is often atrocious. So, Tom, if you were a company that was offering a three-year-long residential cruise commanding tickets that started at $30,000, what's the first thing you would make sure you had before taking people's money? I mean, it for me, Andy, I, I would have made sure I had a boat. You would have made sure you had a boat. Well, guess what Mireille Cruises, founder of and founder and operator of Life at Sea, did not have before taking people's money for a three-year residential cruise? They did not have a boat. They did not have a boat. <laughs> so they delayed that original departure date of November 1st. But as of November 17th, the company just told people, like, hey, sorry, we'll, we'll refund you. We'll put you up in a hotel if you're already stranded here in Istanbul. But we've got no boat for you to be on. Now, Whitman, for her part, and let me remind you, she sold her house. She still hopes to find another long-term residential cruise in 2024. Now, it's been a decidedly mixed year for Cincinnati restaurants. On the one hand, we've written about more than 40 restaurants closing their doors this year, which is more than closed during the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic amid government-mandated shutdowns and capacity restrictions in 2020. But on the other hand, Cincinnati restaurants have received more recognition on the national stage this year than during any I can remember. I mean, look at the James Beard Awards, for instance. Six different restaurants and chefs from Cincinnati were nominated to the semifinalist round this year, which is more than any other year in the awards history. And on top of that, three made it to the finalist round. The last time anybody in Cincinnati made it to the finalist round of the James Beard Awards was 2006, when John Robert was a nominee in the Best Chef category for the Midwest. While none of those finalists ended up winning, Nolia Kitchen, which Chef Jeffrey Harris opened in the former Please Space and over the Rhine last year, was just named one of the best new restaurants in America for 2023 by Esquire magazine. Yeah, Andy, this is absolutely some really good news for the Cincinnati restaurant industry. And it, so you covered this beat for 10 years. Yeah. And I covered it for a few years before you joined us here at The Courier. And I remember kind of you know, we talk about it in this in terms of like those early days of getting some national recognition, and what a difference those ten years have made in terms of people from outside of Cincinnati saying Cincinnati's got something going on here with our with our dining scene. Right. I mean, nowadays, if if someone who is unfamiliar with Cincinnati were to come visit, they would think like, okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to eat Skyline, I'm going to eat Grater's ice cream, and that's about it. But I mean, that is. Far and away, not the best of what the city has to offer from a dining standpoint. And Nolia Kitchen is brand new, but it's gotten a lot of national acclaim thus far. I mean, I heard uh, Chef David Chang 
mentioned it on his podcast where he and his co-host went through the menu trying to, to curate their dream menu of everything they have to offer. And I'm not sure how he found it, but he was raving about the uh, the menu that, that Jeffrey Harris had created there. And Noli is a love letter to his native New Orleans and his grandmother, Jimmy Lou, whose name he used for his first food hall concept and for the bar inside of Nolia. And the restaurant specializes in refined but still comforting versions of New Orleans and Creole cooking. And it had featured many smoked dishes until, uh, <laughs> until a neighbor complained that the outdoor smoker was, uh, you know, too, up too smoky? <laughs> too smoky. The smoker's too smoky. That's terrible. I know. What a Karen. So uh, this is, you know, this kind of national attention for Cincinnati and a Cincinnati restaurant goes above and beyond just drawing people to Nolia Kitchen. It shows people that Cincinnati has something to offer, that Cincinnati deserves a place at the table, so to speak, when it comes to our restaurant scene. And it's not just Jeffrey Harris. I mean, in that... Uh, James Beard Award finalist, you also had Jose Salazar's Mitas, which is probably pound for pound one of the best upscale fine dining experiences in Cincinnati, and uh, really something that is is unlike anything else offered in this entire region, or I would go as far as say as a state. And you also had you know the pastry chef at, at Mochico in East Walnut Hills, which is a kind of a they they use uh, western ingredients with eastern sensibilities to create really unique pastries but they also have a savory menu and ramen soup that includes like a a cincinnati style ramen that uses chili spices and meat to create something that's by no means traditional but is very unique so i don't know i every time we get a kind of a, a national mention in in media like this it just it's another notch in the belt to show like hey yeah we got a place at the table. And Andy, do you think it also is uh, it's showing other talented chefs that this is actually a place that you could, you know, move to and do something here and be part of what's happening? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at Jose Salazar. He was working in Chicago, which is a, a perennial favorite in the James Beard Awards. I mean, they Chicago chef wins just about every year in the Great Lakes category, which includes Illinois and Ohio, among other states. He came down to Cincinnati and worked in kitchens here before you know, starting Salazar and then Mita's and Goose and Elder and now Dade Lily Bodega. So that just goes to show that yeah, you can come to Cincinnati from a big city and have a very successful restaurant career here. Side note, have you had the breakfast sandwich at Dade Lily? I have not. Oh, my gosh. He's, he makes one with Geta that is out of control. It's, I live on the west side, and my wife and I have driven over there uh, to grab that in the morning just because it is so good. Yeah, I will as, – as uh, listeners to this podcast know, I will drive an hour round trip for Marion's Pizza. I am no stranger driving great distances for good food. So we did something – nope, that's the wrong story. So it's time for my favorite recurring segment in this podcast. Let's talk about sports. Yes. In this week's installment, the Cincinnati Reds could be looking for a new broadcaster after the 2024 season. Uh, yeah, Andy, this is uh, – we've been talking a lot about – I shouldn't say a lot. We've been talking about TV rights. Uh, we had um, uh, Lisa Knutson on from Scripps uh, earlier this year talking about kind of their strategy with uh, local sports or sports, you know, sports casting in general. Um, and we've talked about kind of Bally sports and their situation with the Reds, but uh, really curious to see what could happen with our local Reds telecasts after this 2024 season. 
Yeah, so the Reds games are broadcast on Bally Sports Ohio, and Bally is owned by the Diamond Sports Group, which filed for bankruptcy in March. And there's been some some consternation as to what that would mean for local broadcasts of Reds games here. And for the time being, Bally has said they're going to continue to broadcast the games. But in a recent bankruptcy filing in Texas, Diamond Sports Group said that it plans to drop its regional sports contracts after fulfilling them in 2024. So what happens now? I mean, you mentioned Scripps, and they have found great luck with, or not great luck, but great fortune with uh, creating networks around sports broadcasts. I mean, their, their partnership with the Las Vegas Golden Knights, they stood up a whole channel that they could co-package with their other content and programming that they had available and really create something new in that market. And it's something they've done in other markets as well, but it looks like they're not going to be able to do it here in Cincinnati with the Reds because they do it in markets that they already have two existing channels, whereas Scripps, they only have WCPO locally. Yeah, and I wonder... I. You know, I wonder if it's enough because they do have like the multiple stations under you have like the nine dash two and nine dash five or whatever the the sister stations. I wonder if that's something that could be enough to uh, to in, you know to make it work where you would move your regular broadcast to the nine dash two station and put Reds games on nine dash one because I don't know broadcast TV. I think is uh, has a tough road ahead of it. So uh, live sports continues to be kind of the strongest. Uh, opportunity for getting people to watch over the air TV. I, if it were me, I would, I would uh, personally, I would also just love to be able to watch games on broadcast TV, so I don't have to get Apple or some other streaming service to watch uh, my local team. Yeah, and it, Steve Watkins wrote this story for us. Another possibility he wrote about was that MLB could pick up the broadcast themselves which I'm not sure what that looks like because I haven't had broadcast TV or followed sports that since ever so we did something unique this year for our newspaper that came out the week of thanksgiving right we did uh this was the second year that we've done kind of what we've called our giving issue and our initial iteration last year we took a look at um kind of some unsung heroes of the nonprofit world in, in greater cincinnati uh but this year you and i kind of discussed ideas of could we find you know five more you know Nonprofits to, to highlight, but then we also started talking about this idea that uh, Cincinnati has seen uh, had, had seen it at that point in the year um, at least one company. And I think a second was was getting ready to be uh, a B corporation, which is um, you know a, a for profit company uh, that has its eye on and, and kind of its principles about improving their communities. Uh, so we thought the idea of highlighting some of our local B corps would be a would be a good idea. Yeah, so these B corporations, they undergo a rigorous and a lengthy voluntary audit of everything, every aspect of their business, from profit and loss data to social and environmental activities, employee benefits, supply chain practices, and they have to score highly in each of these areas in order to be certified by the nonprofit B Lab. And they're evaluated in these five main pillars, which include governance, environment, community, workers, and customers. And on top of that, they've got to make a legal commitment to change their corporate governance to be accountable to their stakeholders and not just their shareholders. So as you mentioned, this year has been kind of anomalous for B corporations for the longest time. Cincinnati had hovering around 9, 10 companies. I mean, some added, some fall off. But two new were added earlier this year. You had Sleepy Bee, the restaurant chain, and JBM Packaging. 
And the newest B Corporation, which was just announced last week, was Madtree Brewing, Cincinnati's second largest locally owned craft brewery. Now, Madtree is also part of the 1% for the Planet Network, where they contribute 1% of all sales to local environmental initiatives and groups like the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden and the Cincinnati Parks Foundation. And through that, they've committed to delivering $5 million in impact by 2030. And a big thing that they also do is they, they, they like, as their name implies, or maybe not implies, but alludes to, they like to plant trees. They've yes. planted over 5,000 trees annually around Cincinnati, and they, they'll, they'll give their employees an entire day off just to do things like plant trees around parks and, and on uh, some road medians. Yeah, that's that's really cool of Madtree, and something that I uh, personally have done, I think I've planted 14 trees at my house in hmm. the past 10 years, which is, uh, it's a lot of trees. Uh, when you're digging up uh, your yard on the west side, you find a lot of rocks, so uh, a lot of hard work, but, you know, I, I just love being able to look at look at the trees as they grow and make my yard look better and you know, it helps the planet it's good for good for everything yeah well when you're digging up your yard in norwood you find a lot of old wonder bread bags some other things that that mad tree is known for is done that that contributed to such a high recognition especially in the environmental aspect of the b corporation is all full-time employees are required to participate in 16 hours of paid volunteer work per year. 100% of all their carbon offset dollars help go to help the Cincinnati Parks Foundation plant trees. They've invested more than $300,000 in local nonprofits. And over 12 million pounds of spent grain that comes from the brewing process has gone to feeding local livestock since 2016. This week on the podcast, we have Rachel DeRocher, who has turned gratitude into a business empire. Rachel found that the corporate world wasn't for her, but entrepreneurship sure was. She founded her first company more than a decade ago and was off to a tear from there. She started Grateful Grams in 2010, a vegan cookie company, and went on to help other food entrepreneurs launch their businesses through the Northern Kentucky Kitchen Incubator, which has graduated many prominent local eateries. Her latest initiative is the Power to Pursue Conference for Women, centered on self-empowerment. This is Rachel Terosher on Above the Fold. Time does seem to fly. I keep thinking that today is yeah, Friday. Yeah. But it's not. I got two more days of this. Yeah. Sunday was our fundraiser for the incubator, and so I'm still in, like, la-la lands from that. So you do have, you have to wear a lot of different hats. Is that is that true? I do. Is this, are we recording? Always recording, except yeah. when we were off the record. Okay, that was I like off that. the record. Okay. I do wear a lot of hats. I like them. I like all my hats. And what I tell people all the time is take all the hats off and just be me. So like this is Rachel in her finest form is that juggle. Like I love it. I think I love that part about entrepreneurship too is that constant you're solving problems you're thinking outside of the box you're executing and for the majority of my career as an entrepreneur I've been told like you do too much nothing's ever gonna nothing's gonna grow you're not gonna be successful um and I showed up every day for the last 13 and a half years so that feels good so I want to know how it all got started. Was Grateful Grams your first venture? Yeah, Grateful Grams. Um, we started in April 2010 out of my house with a five and a half month old strapped to my back. 
literally. Um, I started that company, lost my job, was in marketing for a um, local grocer, learned all about grassroots marketing there, learned about the power of local food, purchasing local food, selling local foods. I guess they're a national grocer, but... Um, when my daughter was born, I have three kids. Rosie is my only girl. And I kind of went into that space of I can tell her that anything's possible. And the world is her oyster. I had an incredible mother, but I grew up listening to like, I wish I could have. I should have. Why didn't I? And so Rosie reflected that back to me. And I was, wait, what am I doing to show her that your dreams are possible. And so literally started Grateful Grams with $1,000, um, which I bought a printer with and some packaging. Um, we made it, our first banner was a sheet, $3 <laughs> sheet from Walmart that I invited all my friends to come over and put their hands on. And because that's who I am, like that's still important to me. And really just set out on a mission to spread the message of gratitude. So from the beginning, Grateful Grams for me has been about sharing the message of gratitude. I was just able to do that through a cookie. So it's always been mission driven for me. Uh, and yeah, is that wild? Yeah, you know, I think my punk rock band in high school's first banner was a sheet as well. Yeah, see? <laughs> Look at us. <laughs> They're handy. I actually just found it this week. Somebody was like, what is that? And I was like, don't touch it. One day it's going to go on a wall. Heck yeah. Yeah. So did you have a background in baking or what was it about? And then and then why vegan cookies? Yeah. Ba background in baking. No, I have food in my blood. Uh, my great-grandfather started a restaurant in the 40s and franchised it. And my parents um, had a small pizza place. So... Food for me is the connector. It's the community. That's what I love about food. It brings people together no matter who you are, what you believe, what you think, what you feel. Um, so I think that's a big reason why I'm in food. I think the graham cracker was an anomaly. I had a handmade graham cracker a few months prior and my mind was blown. Mm -hmm. It was so delicious I grew up on graham crackers. I'm sure if I called my grandmother right now, she's 88, and I'd be like, Grams, do you have graham crackers? Like, she just always kept those in her purse, right? Like the waxy, nostalgic graham cracker that we all grew up in. So it was this pool of like, I remember standing in line at Elder Beerman with my mom and my grandma being like, I need a snack. And like grandma pulls the graham crackers out, right? And so, and that alliteration, right? Grateful grams and... So there isn't a why it just happened to be that way. I thought it was just so delicious and it kind of blew my mind that we could make a graham cracker. And then when we actually first started, I made them vegan and not vegan. And uh, the vegan ended up getting the best reviews. Like hmm. they were the crowd favorite. And then it would allowed me to kind of give a nod back to my dad who had cancer and beat cancer's ass and um, went vegan through that whole experience. So uh, I don't lead with that. It's Is it important? Sure, it's delicious. I think it goes back to me. Uh, food's delicious. Good food is delicious, right? So yeah. And so was it always a plan? So for, for our listeners who may not be aware, I mean, you started there, but then you launched the Incubator Kitchen Collective, which now has four locations? 
Well, we have two main hubs that we operate. We've opened other facilities and I've consulted in other kitchens across the country, but our big hub is in Newport. We have a 10,000 square foot space down there. And then we've been in partnership with St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Newport since 2016 as well. Um, we had a facility we opened in Loveland. Um, I've consulted for the city of Fairborn and worked on that project. And a lot of people probably thought it was my kitchen because I was up there. I, I want to grow any community. So like, I'm like, great, well then we'll just come north. Like, I'll bring all my Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky folks like let's go build this community and so um, the incubator kind of came back to this idea here I am in food I'm at we were doing six farmers markets a week and we're meeting all of these people and there was nothing here regionally to support food entrepreneurs and so I literally just opened the doors to the kitchen we were in I kind of just said I, I leave every day to go to the market at two so this facility sitting empty seven days a week um, and started just inviting some of our farmer market friends, Ethan with Summer Hummus, who has a restaurant up in Montgomery. He was one of our first renters. Um, Sarah Doric with Babushka Pierogies. Like those were like those very early startups. We opened in Covington, uh, again, unfunded, saw the vision, had the passion went to Ken Recton, who was the interim director at the time of the senior services. His kitchen was sitting empty. And I said, I have no money, but I think I could put this kitchen to use. And he's like, I need some money. <laughs> and so I came back a few months later with this, a, a better vision, you know, like at least he knew I had an idea that could possibly make some money. Right. Like there it was like before I was just like, Hey, um, and so to go back and say, hey, Ken, is your kitchen still sitting empty? And he's like, yes. And I was like, great. Now you need me more than you did three months ago, yeah. right? And here's my idea. What if we open the doors and we started inviting food entrepreneurs in so that they have a space? It's certified from you know the state and the local health departments. And what has become, so it, we opened that in September 2013, so we just celebrated 10 years of serving the community in that space. We've helped over 180 food entrepreneurs here in the region. Wow. 2016, we closed the Covington location. We moved to Newport, where we have a 10,000-square-foot facility, um, and it's just a really incredible ecosystem. The way that I talk about the incubator is that healthy people build healthy businesses, our city is rich in resources um, in the business space. Uh, literally, we could sit here and throw a stone and probably hit 10 groups that could help a startup, right? And and what if they weren't running around like a chicken with their head cut off? Or we could lessen the running around with their head, chicken with the head cut off. What, what if resources could start being pulled together? What if we had space in the office for somebody just to come in and say that today's a really hard day? What if we started seeing the humans behind the businesses versus just focusing on how to make more money off the businesses? These people are, are starting from scratch with zero investment, zero startup capital. They're not taking paychecks for three to five years if they're lucky, you know, all to bake great grandma Gertrude's pie. Ah, like how cool is that, you know? And and on the flip side, we have companies like Sensoy who come in and within six months, they're, they've quadrupled their footprint in our facility. We're like, we love you, Sam, but you need to go. So he, like, he incubated out so quickly. Um, 60 of our companies have incubated out into retail stores. I, I don't know that that's the end goal for everybody. Um, I know cities want it to be the end goal, but at the same time, let's get these people a chance to get a business stable and actually 
make sure they really love what they're doing. Um, we've served everything from caterers, food trucks, um, kombucha, ferments, tons of bakers, meal prep companies, granola companies. Uh, you name it, I've probably seen it come through the door at one point or another. So, Rachel, what do you spend the most time with your incubator tenants? Like, what are you, you mentioned it's more than just, you know, refining a, a recipe or figuring out their marketing. Where do you spend the most of your time? My time at the incubator is probably spent with doing strategic work with those guys, helping them think outside of the box, helping them work through. I, I've got the product. I've got the packaging. I'm in a farmer's market. Now, how do I go present to a wholesale? So we kind of start building out that. And I can get to a level. And then I bring in way smarter partners, which is awesome, right? And so, um, and I have companies that I meet with once a month for six weeks. And I have companies that might come in once every six months. And so really, we're here to meet them where they're at and help them get to where they're going, not where we want them to be at, which is a fun ah, challenge. Um, but I love watching startups. Man, they're small business. Like this is small business at its core. Um, start and do something. Take it to market. I have an incredible Matt, who's our director of operations, who kind of keeps the facility up and running and does all the new member onboarding and does the that work now for me, which is incredible so that I can do more strategic work. And really, if I'm not meeting in that space with them one-on-one, -on -one, I would say the other part of that is that I'm here having these conversations, right? I'm out in the public. I'm talking. I'm always going, hey, that's great that you're using this corporate caterer. Let me introduce you to, you know, 17 small caterers who could actually use the sale right now, right? Like, um, that is really crucial. And what's being built then alongside that to kind of help me start streamlining that process is a new company called Good and Local. Um, we launched it softly this year. We had our first event in March of 2023 where we put on the region's first wholesale food show. So we had 37 artisan vendors from across the region. This isn't an incubator, of course, my people were there, but um, we've got a lot of people doing food across this region and there's nothing that's bringing us together as a whole community. So I went good and local to kind of start being that um, consumer packaged goods. Uh, we'll, 2024, we'll do another wholesale food show. And then we'll also probably do a, like a quarterly educational program. I really want to focus and hone in on the wholesale space. Again, we've got plenty of education. We've got plenty of accelerators here. But people don't realize that once you get into Kroger, you have to work to keep Kroger. Once you get into Jungle Gyms, you have to work to keep Jungle Gyms. And so what are the resources that are actually coming on board now that we're getting local products into local spaces and national spaces? Now what's that next level that they could need? Um, we're working on that with Main Street Ventures, which is really fun. So. Oh, that's fantastic. That's a whole story we'll send you, Andy. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, no, we had Sean on the podcast a while ago. He was great. Yeah, I have. I met him briefly. So, yeah, I think the Abby and Brianna are really excited to have him on the team. Excellent. So you mentioned a couple of them, like Sarah, who opened up Vodka Bar and OTR. And I believe in the midst of the pandemic, I drove down and picked up soup from Mochico, Ugh, who has They're rocking now, it. Yeah, she yeah. She just got a James Beard nom, didn't she? She did. That's fantastic. And now they're open up in East Walnut Hills. A lot of your 
graduates have gone on to really kind of make their own mark on the culinary scene here. That's got to make you feel pretty proud. It's really cool to know that I'm a speck in their story, for sure. And, uh, you know, we try to loop them in. I think it's once they leave, you're you're like, don't forget about us, but like also forget about us. Um, And so we do try to pull them in and say, what you guys need anything? Or we just go eat lots of their delicious food. I mean, right, you got Pickled Pig. He incubated out of our space. Uh, Tuba Baking came out of our kitchen, North-South Baking, Mochico. Yeah, it's really cool. So was this all part of the end game when you started Grateful Grams? And not just this, but you've now got a couple of years of power to pursue under your belt. How did that come out? Nothing's the end game. <laughs> it's the entrepreneurial way. You know, I tell people, I actually said this week, I was giving a talk and talking to somebody, and I said, I... I will consistently and constantly go back to the fact that this all started 13 and a half years ago with a brown square. Like, that's really important. And I and that's really important because you see these people and all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, they've made it or they're so successful. And thank you. I'm very, 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 very proud of what has been built here um, over in my in my world and I started it all with a thousand dollars in a brown square and no I had no idea that I would open the incubator I had no idea in 2022 I'd give 35 speeches I did not see power to pursue as a, a thought but as I have grown as a human my needs and desires as an entrepreneur and what I can see, what I have access to, the conversations, the people I can reach, it has built, I think, so organically. So if I stop and look at everything that's been built, we've put on podcasts, we've put on music festivals, um, incubator, everything has been literally through the mission to spread the message of gratitude and build community. So that's my through line. Um, And that's really important because that is who I am. I believe in that power to pursue the mission is to create a safe space for women to be seen and heard and loved, not to network, not to grow their business, not to, not to get the next raise in the corporate. We want that. I want every woman to be the leader that they want, whether it's in their home or in their office. It's connecting us back into being grounded leaders versus leaders who are exhausted, burnout, and just doing it to do it so what if we could slow down and actually see the equity and coming to the table together right like i joke that um there's always a seat at the table if you don't leave home without your chair (laughs) right like that's really important and i think in the space for women it's always been well it's women in food or women in tech or women in marketing or you're a stay-at-home mom or you're retired like this is for all of us. And we see that we had over 550 women at Music Hall in May. We just launched a second conference called the Women's Wellbeing Summit that's hyper-focused on sexual, financial, and mental well-being of women. Um, our stages are minimum 40% of diversity. Our ages and our audience literally are from high school to early 70s. Like, I've not seen anything like this. So as I say, I try to hold it lightly. I'm very, I feel very honored that women trust me (laughs) and they show up um, in these rooms to help me build it. And in two, 
two years I, this month, two years this month, we've be, we were a company in November and we've served thousands of women. We work with Madtrion Ascending Women series, which is a monthly event program. I'm on the advisory um, team for the Queen City Game Changers, which is an executive coaching program with Procter & Gamble and Kroger, right? And so, oh. So for, for those who might not be familiar, what is Power to Pursue and, and how'd that come about? Power to Pursue is a women's empowerment movement in its broadest stroke. So it was really important for me as a woman um, and as a builder here and as someone who's going into these rooms and struggling to be seen or struggling for maybe my voice to be heard or for me to find people that believe that a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, And so, and I was ready to speak that. I think speak it on a stage, speak it louder. So you build the stage, right? So we launched in December of 21 doing some micro programming to just kind of build it. May of 22, I had my first conference. We had 400 people at Memorial Hall and like people were like, what is this? And I said, honestly, I don't know yet, but if you just show up, we're going to figure it out. Oh my gosh, don't work under the pressure. Like I just took the pressure bubble off for just a moment, right? Like just give me a second to make to create this space. And so Procter & Gamble's been our title sponsor the last two years. Um, I want women and all, I mean, we have men that show up in these rooms every single time we put an event on. Thank you men who are showing up. You guys are welcome to always join us. I, I, I've been saying and gnawing on that, Andy, of like, what is this? Well, I kind of go back to this. I think women can lead at the highest. I just don't think we need to lead in burnout, right? Like, how do we give us greater access to easier tools that support our human beingness <laughs> so that we can be a better mother, a better daughter, a better wife, a better friend, a better employee, a better business owner, because we're actually going, I'm worthy. I am enough. People believe in me. I have help. Because all of a sudden you're in rooms with women who want to help one another versus there's one seat at the table, and I'm going to do anything I can so I have that seat. Every woman has a seat at my table, no matter what you're building, no matter what you believe. That's really important, and I don't know that we've seen that happen yet. And I think that's why it's growing so fast. Um, we really walk the talk, and I'm really, really proud. I think it's the most aligned, incredible thing I've ever built. And it all started with the brown square. And it all started with the brown square. Anything's possible. Dream big and make it beautiful, you know? Yeah. Rachel, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to chat. Above the Fold is a podcast by the Cincinnati Business Courier, hosted by me, Andy Brownfield, and Tom Demeropoulos. The podcast is produced and edited by me, and our theme music was written by Dylan McCartney. Come back next week for another edition of Above the Fold. Above the Fold.